Welcome to Wadcast. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. We toss around words like gifted and talented when speaking about entertainers, but those descriptions and so many more fit today's guest perfectly. Deb Filler is a comedian who performs 36 characters in her one-woman show, Punch Me in the Stomach. Her talents for accents could surpass that of Meryl Streep. She finds humor in the most unlikely situations, and in one of her shows, Fill Her Up, she bakes a loaf of challah bread on stage. She once thought she would become a folk singer and was encouraged by a trio you may have heard of, Peter, Paul, and Mary. And one of the greatest influences in her life was Leonard Bernstein, who she not only praised for his warmth and generosity, but also co-wrote a short film about him. Deb was born in New Zealand, but has performed all over the world, including in New York. From April 13th through April 29th, D.C. area audiences have the opportunity to see this amazingly talented woman in her show, I Did It My Way, at Metro Stage in Alexandria, Virginia. I am very excited to welcome Deb Filler to Wadcast. Deb, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited about interviewing you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So, first question. You are a storyteller. What stories did you enjoy hearing when you were a little girl growing up in New Zealand? Gosh, I loved the stories of my mother's parents and their whole German-Jewish contingency. Uh, there was a contingent, I should say, uh, from 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 Germany. Uh, they were all escapees from uh, Hitler, and they arrived bang smack in this colonial New Zealand in the thirties, which was really a farming. It was a farming country and a part of the British Empire. Uh, no, no connection at all to my grandmother Greta Rothschild and her handover roots. Uh, you know, she, it, it was a complete culture clash. So this, the stories that would come out of that culture clash and the humour that would come out of it, the fact that they were into um, European things and European styles and beautiful things and nice plates and crockery, there were endless discussions about what should Moita and uh, you know the very good China uh, Rosenthal. Uh, um, it was sort of the youth and also the mills and the the, the marzipals that my um, grandmother made was her mother's recipe, and they they made from marzipals, ginger and um, nutmeg and nuts, and you know they can trace this back to Sephardic. Uh, German Jewish roots so you know the stories were endless my mother's father was a natural born storyteller an absolutely marvellous man and he told stories and made up stories about slow vice and the seven little putty pocket dwarfs rinky dinky stinky pinky minky and rock and roll and little runt tinky you know, he, he was just hilarious and he told stories um, and of course then there were my my um, father's good memories. Uh, so he really enjoyed hearing, you know, things about his childhood uh, and um, 
of course, the contingent from Germany was big, and many of them didn't have children. So we would sit as children, me and my sis, and uh, we'd listen to, um, you know, these women in, in fur coats that smelled, smelled a bit like mothballs, uh, and their husbands smoked cigars, and the, the coffee was percolating, and it was fresh-baked German goods, you know, cakes and afternoon tea and schlag, dipped cream, everything was encased in a story. So it was a very ripe environment to hear those stories. And then, of course, you know, growing up in New Zealand in that British colonial uh, world, also there were the stories of my friends' parents, who many of whom had fought in World War II mm. uh, in the Allied um you know, uh, um, for the Allies uh, as part of the Anzacs. And um, they were um, full of their own stories of India and uh, North Africa and Europe. Uh, New Zealand was, you know, like I think many countries after World War II, you know, suffered a lot of post-traumatic stress in the return servicemen. Um, so sometimes humour would come out of those stories and... Um, you know, there was the usual kids' shenanigans and stories from teachers and so on. But it was a pretty rich old Persian carpet, percolated coffee, you know, the classical music environment with the, always the inevitable smell mm. of those cigars. Well, I, I find it interesting because sometimes people who have been through traumatic uh, events in their lives uh, are reluctant to talk about it. I know my father, who was in France during uh, World War II, he never really talked about World War II that much. But your father really did talk about it. Not only did he talk about it, but he took you to, uh, to the camps where, where he had been. Um, I mean, talk a little bit about that. I mean, what was that like for you and for him? Well, it was a life-changing event. It really was for me. Um, for him, I think it was something extraordinary also. I mean, my father's been gone nearly 20 years, and I, I can't speak for him, but Dad uh, was very unusual. See, you know, what I just talked about is post-traumatic stress. You know, your father not being able to talk about it, Charlene, is part of his, his PTSD, right? Sure. It's horrible to imagine. So what they were taught at that generation is, you know, get on with it suck it up and get on with it and they did but they were untreated PTSD people walking around creating our world for us the next generation as we're creating for the next generation right so it's like I think these things are generational I think he definitely passed it on to us I don't know if he passed your dad passed yours on to you but there's a lot of anxiety in that sort of way uh, and, and one of the real pressures of relieving that anxiety is it's like going to a Museum, you go to the site and you see what pieces you can pick up. And I think what it does for PTSD, which is really healthy, is it puts it into the present. So it is no longer happening. And you go, it's not happening anymore. Mm, mm. You know, that thing is over. Now, whether or not you can convince yourself of that, that's another question. But right. I think that's part of my father's journey. And I think for me it was that journey too of being able to say, you know, there were so many in Punch Me in the Stomach, the show that I did out of that particular trip, Punch Me in the Stomach, which um, is a film and it was on PBS and, uh, you know, it had a very long 12-year life as a one-woman show with 36 um, characters. Uh, 
that is the story of, you know, going on that journey and finding humor um, in spite of the incredible darkness of the subject matter. It's something that Arch Spiegelman managed to do too in Mouse. Mm. Uh, I think it's just about tackling it. And it's, it's what I think what we have to do. We have to tackle our demons. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, it may be an ongoing struggle to do that, uh, or let's not say struggle, but a, a continuum. It just keeps going. But, you know, you do your best. And I think going with my dad, um, as I say, it was life-changing because I was able to put it into the present day, not my fantasy. And I think he, just to a certain extent, did too. Bearing in mind the fact that my dear father, Solly, may he rest in peace, Shaya Filler, his name was, Shaya was his Yiddish nickname. Um, he, uh, I think... You know, he, he had a lot of memories that he needed to uh, connect to. Mm. And when you've lost everything and everybody, I think one way to go and deal with it is by going and seeing it now, mm. saying, wow, this is, uh, you know, this is now, that was then. Right. So now you did mention that in Punch Me in the Stomach you performed 36 different characters. How do you keep each one unique? How do you create 36 different characters. I don't know. It's like being multi-personality. You just sort of <laughs> do it. I feel like it comes from inside. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, I'm not certainly not the only actor who can do it. You think about people like Meryl Streep and, and, um, and, and, and Heath Ledger and Gary Oldman and Daniel Day-Lewis is a very good example. Um, Saoirse... Uh, Ronan, you can click into various um, Kate, Kate Winslet, mm-hmm. um, uh, Helen Mirren, uh, click into different personalities that you then become. Daniel Day Lewis, he's unbelievable mm-hmm. at that. Um, and, and and I think of one of you know my mentors, Peter Sellers, uh, just being able to do that. It's sort of an escape in a way from um, from having to be in the real world mm. but I think it comes so far from within that that's how it makes it unique because then the person is very defined by who you make them but I'm not constant I mean I'll concentrate on physical aspects like do they have a limp or a hunch or you know but but actually when I become them they, they actually get all that stuff mm. but I mean when you talk about Daniel Day-Lewis and Meryl Streep they are one character in a movie that they're playing, but you have these 36 characters in one show uh, moving from one to another. I mean, that must take an incredible amount, just keeping them all straight. Yeah. Um, it, uh, I think because I know so well inside who they are, mm-hmm. that it, it's... I mean, I'm told that my face changes completely and my body changes and that... Um, uh, you know, that watching, you know, watching is a transfer, transformation, you mm. know, like, uh, <laughs> I, think you, I think I'm a little bit of a um, uh, chameleon. Mm. Mm. So I can, you can, it's very difficult to explain it because it just is a thing. It's an organic thing. It's kind of a sense. Right. And um, I, I suppose it's quite unusual, but I always thought everybody had it. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> 
So now at one point you thought you might become a folk singer and you had some pretty, you know, spectacular people urging you on in that. Um, when, oh, yeah. uh, any regrets? I mean, and what, what caused you to move from that to uh, doing something totally different? Well, actually, that's a good question. I, I think um, oh, gosh, I'm talking about me a lot here. I'd rather talk about the big picture, really. Folk music was such a, a, a political phenomenon of its time because it became out of the protest movement right. in the United States. And, um, you know, and out of that came, you know, emancipation for black people, if we can call it that today with whatever it is that we've got, but it certainly took a very big step. Uh, And a lot of that came out of that music. And as a nine-year-old kid, I was extremely caught up by that. And so, you know, the people at the time that I I just got bitten by were were Peter, Paul and Mary, you know, Judy uh, Collins, Josh White, there were, you know, Bob Dylan, there were just the, I think he came a little bit later because I was, the Beatles, um, Mm. even though they were more pop, but it was just something in the air that was happening. And so because New Zealand being such a small country, you know, they say, you know, my career sort of came to North America really because... You know, it's very, very easy to break the ice in New Zealand, but once you do, there's not a lot of scope. But if you come here, it's really hard to break the ice, but if you do, the potential is so much greater. There's so many more options, right? Mm, yes. Um, but being in New Zealand, one of the advantages, many of your um, listeners or readers or whatever they are, uh, people who are sharing this interview, uh, will know who have been to New Zealand. It's, it's a small, isolated country, uh, but people are quite friendly. So it's not not done there to, it's not not done to um, go and meet people who were touring. And it's pretty easy to do. They'd be at the local town hall and you could just go and say hi after the show. And that's basically what happened with them. Mm-hmm. I met them and they were amazing. Um, and then I met, uh, yeah, so there were a few experiences in my youth, uh, having met Leonard Bernstein when I was 19. It wasn't folk music, of course, but uh, that was an extraordinary um, event in my life, too. But sorry, I, I just wanted to get back. What was your question? Uh, why you decided not to continue being a folk singer. All right. So being caught up in it, I certainly was, and then I became a folk singer, and I, I actually was studying to be a teacher, but, you know, there certainly was no, um, in New Zealand being so small, there was no option for me to be a professional folk singer mm-hmm. in New Zealand. No. Um, but I did get into rock and roll, and um, I was in some bands, and then out of rock and roll came a political theatre group called Debbie and the Dum Dums. (laughs) And out of Debbie and the Dum Dums came a desire to uh, want to learn how to train to be an actor. And so I I was headed for London but ended up in New York and studied with um, Stella Adler and at Uta Hagen's Great Academy. Uh, I I would um, crash Uta's class as much as I could. and I studied with her husband, Herbert Berghoff, and there were some very good teachers at that school. Uh, and then um, from that, uh, there was a sort of a, an opportunity, I guess. 
who were the people like Eric Bogosian was doing solo shows. I just saw an opportunity because working in theatre groups was so much harder to organise and they couldn't sustain themselves. And, and I, it didn't sort of seem to fit in because now I was a Kiwi in New York and what group <laughs> would I be in, you know? So I just developed my own little company and... Um, and had a really, you know, marvellous response, really. And, and this guy from New Zealand who was quite famous said, you know, you're a combination of Bette Midler, what did he say, Bette Midler and, and um, Laurie Anderson. That's right. Keep going, Deb. You know, you're a little bit edgy and a little bit rock and roll, <laughs> but you've got the humour going. It's, it's fantastic. And that really um, totally helped me. I thought, oh, wow, he sees me like them wow so there must have been some energy i was transmitting there were certainly many you know difficult days where you go oh god am i really going to continue doing this but hey i'm um i'm i've sustained a long career so i guess i made the right choice but it led me into you know solo work and uh and then i had the opportunity uh to you know to study in new york and to be in various political theatre groups and um, more like satire, more like parody. I mm-hmm. was never into, you know, it was more shock and mm. humour and music, always music. Mm. So uh, you mentioned uh, Leonard Bernstein. So <clears throat> tell us a little bit about how you met him and <clears throat> what he meant to you. And you went on to do a film about him, Mr. Bernstein. That's right. You say Steen, I say Stein. <laughs> Stein, okay. <laughs> when he moved up, they dropped the Steen and they became Stein. Mm. <laughs> As you said, told a lot of stories, and he did talk about his time in the camps a lot. He also talked about the unbelievably inspiring moments in his life a lot, and one of them was after the war, he was in a displaced persons camp near Munich in a place called Landsberg, um, Lech. It means um, it's by the lake, Landsberg mm-hmm. by the lake. And uh, when he was there, I think three years already, Leonard Bernstein came and played as a young man, played Rhapsody in Blue. Mm. And the orchestra that was backing him were all survivors from the camps. And it was a very profound moment for everybody in the audience, including my dad. And I think he felt some, I mean, you get back to that post-traumatic stress thing again, you know. I think he felt some stirring and some renewal Mm -hmm. because he was amazed that the music was written by a Jew and played by a Jew from America and that the orchestra were all survivors. In fact, that number on his arm that had represented a number, that's what he was, a number, um, that he may not be that, that he may, in fact, I mean, he knew that he wasn't that because he was a policeman in the DP camp and he was trying to get to Palestine, he was trying to get to America, he he was, you know, actively being a human being again. But um, I think that the, the music really spoke to him, it was so powerful that actually he, he's going to do it. He's going to be a, a Jew in the world again. Uh, and that, that they haven't been stamped out. 
And he often told that story when there was a TV show when I was a very young girl called The Young People's Concerts. And it was in black and white and I very early, we only got TV in the 60s in New Zealand. But then that was a show that I would be appealed to as a young musician myself. Um, and it was about Leonard Bernstein. It was it featured Leonard Bernstein as a teacher and as a professor, you know, as a as a pro as a mentor to proteges to young musical proteges uh, on the stage at Lincoln Centre. And he was such a lovely teacher. And you know, I thought, wow, I really warmed to him. To his, he was he was just so charismatic. There are some people who are just really special mm. form and. He was one of them, very warm man. It was Eddie Arrow from uh, Peter, Paul and Mary, and so was, so was Paul, and so was Mary. But the, 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 uh, Peter was, he had this kind of Jewish warmth, and, and, um, and uh, that's exactly what Leonard Bernstein had. As it came over the tube, you know. Mm-hmm. So as a child, I kind of was struck by the fact that Dad had seen him, and that he was on this, this, and then he came to town, and I was a young woman, and uh, uh, you know, it's all in the show, uh, and we made a film about it. But basically, I don't want to tell you the whole story because it'll just take up too much time, and also it's part of my my, my show. Uh, but but you know, he ended up um, asking me about my dad, who was a colour baker by that time in Auckland, New Zealand, and. Um, he asked if he could meet my father and would we be able to have a, a challah. And I tell the story with, with, you know, there was lots of Jewish humour and, and it was just joyful. Anyway, my father couldn't make it because he had to finish baking the bread. <laughs> so I went back to the Auckland Town Hall with challah for Leonard Bernstein from my father. And he ended up playing a piano concerto for me alone in the Auckland Town Hall. Oh my uh, goodness! It was so joyful and so powerful. What a moment! What, well, you know, it was, and 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 you know, just that music it sort of infuses you. There's a lot of music in this show that I do too. Um, I think music is so it's this nostalgia in it, and that's very powerful between human beings. I think we really love to and need to connect. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to connect with each other. I think, and. Um, Without really knowing it, music baton gets passed. You hear mm. me? Yes, yes. The baton gets passed, so that's how our love of music and how our politics and how our view of the world is all formed by our, by 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 your your parents, do, but including that as their music. And so you know, it was a great gift from my father mm-hmm. to love classical music and to love music and. My mother's family were all extremely musical, so that was a gift that I got given by my family. And and I, you know, I suppose you have to have a certain talent within you. To, you know, you have to be able to keep a tune for God's sake. But if you've got a good voice, or you know, you I pick up music pretty quickly. I have a good ear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, there's a lot of music that um, I think uh, resonates, and that's why we like to see by the seaside. Oh, I don't like to be. That was all the British. Um, it's a long way to, to people kind of just, just 
about my sunshine, my only. And you can get a smile out of anybody when you sing a song like this. We sing together because we do want to be connected, and music really helps helps that. So I think what what I do really is 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 for myself and for other people too. It's about we laugh and we sing and we connect in stories. We feel good together, and that, to me, is the most important part about this incredibly short journey that we're on here on this earth, right? So now you mentioned the bread, and I know you have a show, which unfortunately I missed at Metro Stage, uh, Filler Up, where you actually do bake on stage. So tell us a little bit about that show. Oh, Filler Up. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. <laughs> the three big shows that I've ever done, I've been homages to my dad. Mm. It's, it's a struggle within me sometimes to understand why. I mean, you know, he was just such a hero to me. And, and um, you know, a flawed hero, very much so. Uh, that, that, that show was one, you know, my eulogy to my dad. And uh, Punch Me in the Stomach was about the trip that I took with him. Right. Uh, and this show... Uh, I did it my way uh, in, in Yiddish and English, is another homage to is to my family, really, to all of them, um, for the music that they gave me. But in the end, you know, I pick Yiddish um, because that's the one that's that speaks to me the most in, in this particular show. Um, wait, now, I forgot where I went. What was the... It was about baking the bread and fill her up. Oh, yeah, what was I... Uh, yeah, so... Uh, the best line in the show really is um, my father's on his deathbed and I say dad, dad you know will you give me the recipe for your challah and this is an amazing story that we got to the challah you know, he, his family were bakers back in Poland and everybody died and they were murdered and you know he's carrying on this incredible family tradition uh, my family in Mexico are all bakers my mother's a baker, my grandmother's a baker, everybody's on a diet, everybody doesn't want to waste food, it's all crazy, but he's on his deathbed, and I say, Dad, um, you know, can I please, would you give me the recipe for your challah? And he's lying, and he goes, okay. You take a sack of flour, 10 dozen eggs, two fistfuls of yeast. You know, he's giving me the recipe <laughs> for 100 dozen. But, oh, God. <laughs> the only man, you know, he knew how to feed a lot of people. Right, right. Amazing. So, you know, Deb, you've performed all over the world. Uh, what are the differences in audiences depending on where you are? I mean, is performing before an audience in the U.S. or in a specific city in the U.S. different from performing in, uh, you know, a European country in London or... Oh God, the Germans, they, um, it's embarrassingly long encore. Like, they clap. And I, I've done many shows in Germany. You get like six encores. The, the whole, part of the whole show is the encore. And they don't laugh in the middle of it. So that's rude to them. To, you know, they want to listen. So that's definitely a specific type. Although, of course, younger audiences who've done a lot more traveling and stuff, you know, I, I haven't performed in Germany for probably three or four years, so it's a generalization, but, but that was my experience there. Very serious, you know. <laughs> and um, the English audiences are quite quiet, 
Uh, and then they also approve at the end, uh, very much so. Um, Australians and New Zealanders stamp their feet when they love a show. Interesting. Uh, uh, American audiences, it depends on the city. I mean, it depends on where. It depends on the space and it depends on, um, you know, the producer. Like, mm-hmm. um, I did a run of Filler Up in Florida and I was hired to take over from somebody who hadn't shown up. Um if there was one person under 90. <laughs> oh, out of it at least, but it was uh, eight very long weeks. Um, it came at a really great time in my life because I really needed the money. But, um, yeah, it was uh, no response except the occasional flatulent. Mm. Or, um, you know. <laughs> but... Uh, that's Florida. <laughs> uh, Miami, I'm sure, is a whole totally. So it depends on who's in the uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just did um, just did a show in, in Los Angeles, and they just really, really responded well. Perhaps a little quieter mm-hmm. in LA, you know. And it depends on who's sitting in the front row, Charlie. Mm. If there's somebody really enjoying themselves in the front row, the whole room can relax. Yeah, Rather than going, you know, should I? But if, and if, there, if there was a singer, like I did a show in uh, Toronto last year uh, and it was um, a music week, a Jewish music week, uh, which is a really fun event. And the whole audience sang and sang and sang. In this particular show, it's so much fun when that happens. Mm. You know, because then everybody has a really good time and that loosens me up more. Sure, Yeah. So you know, now, when I feel people are really having a great time, like I can only do so much, you know. Yeah. But usually they do. And usually, you know, yeah, it's a connection. So now you've been doing this for a long time. Um, how has it changed for women doing comedy and especially for women doing what you do, you know, one-woman so, shows? Um. It's changed a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. the world has changed so much. Uh, I, I have a colleague and friend, Judy Gold. You should interview her. Oh, my God. <laughs> you may not thank me for asking you, for, for suggesting it. She's a very loud-mouthed Jewish woman mm-hmm. um, who um, is uh, New York and is not afraid to say anything. It's like Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, it's like um, the Me Too movement. We have to, we've come out now to say anything we want. So I I think the Me Too movement has done more for comedy than um, anything. But before mm. that, yes, there's been a big big change for women. People like uh, I can't try, I'm just trying to remember her name. Um, the blonde, dirty mouth. Um, Amy Schumer. Oh, yes. Uh, and and that fantastic movie, Bridesmaids. There's just been so much that it, there's just been groundbreaking stuff and there's so many young LGBT women and uh, comedians. They're coming right out of the woodwork. It's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. I know you think back to times when uh, comedians like Lenny Bruce, uh, you know, really... You know, were criticized for and censored for some of what they were saying, and now uh, it seems to be more 
liberal and open. Well, you know, it's just, I think now that it's been defined as LGBT, and there's a couple more letters, I think, um, you know, I, I, even myself, I'm going, oh, wait a minute, I'm not a lesbian. I'm, um, I'm part of a movement of, I'm part of a, I'm a member of society that, uh, is just one member of society. There's, 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 we're a group and we've been, we're now have demanded our, our, our place. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's, that's been incredible just as we have to do that for all minorities because minorities are what make up the majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what the whole civil war in America is all about, isn't it? So you're going to be at Metro Stage uh, this month with uh, I Did It My Way. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. I know you're also going to show the film uh, during that uh, performance. Is that correct? Yes, we're going to show the film. Um, well, I don't, I don't know. What, what, I mean, show, it's about it's about music and it's about yeah, your music. Yeah, all the things I've been saying. Um, yeah. And, and music and stories, warmth, um, connection. It's about meeting Leonard Cohen. Mm-hmm. Mm. About meeting uh, Leonard Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about the baton that I picked up that my parents gave me without me realizing I'd even done it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we all, you know, we get, we, we get that opportunity, don't we? Yes. Did you, did you listen to music growing up? Absolutely, yes. What sorts of things did your parents listen to? Oh, Frank Sinatra, you know, yeah. Dean Martin, we're an Italian household, so all of those yeah. singers, you know, Connie Francis. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and actually, my children enjoy them now too. So that's sort of fun to see that passed down. So fantastic. Yes. So, anything on your bucket list? What's What's next? Well, um, I'm writing a book. Uh, excuse me. I'm writing a play called My German Roots Are Showing. Oh. <laughs> okay. And that's about my mother's side of the family. Um, it's, it's, it's really a story about uh, internalized prejudice that we all have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I think it comes down to. There, there is, you know, that I think filler up is about, okay, punch me in the stomach was about using humor to get through very difficult times. There's not much more universal than that. Mm. Uh, filler up was really about uh, feeding yourself and feeding others, doing being able to do both. Uh, I lost it in Kiev, which is a show we haven't talked about. Was about looking for something that you might have had all along. Hmm. Uh, I did it my way in in Yiddish and English. I think it's just about passing the baton. Hmm. And uh, saying uh, through music, how do you, uh, I think we basically, it's such a great connection music and it's so powerful. Mm. So that's what this is, it's about music is very universal and uh, how we don't really think that 
we're like our parents, but we are really <laughs> a lot more than we thought we were. So, sure. but it's a nice way to, to to interpret that. It's a nice way to say it through their music, I think. So. But, you know, Deb, listening to you talk about all of these shows and what you're putting across to your audiences, you aren't just a comedian or an entertainer. You're almost a philosopher and, you know, a therapist as you're going through all of this. I mean... Philosopher. That's me. (laughs) It's amazing. It's amazing what you do with comedy. It really is. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for... uh, for talking with me. I encourage everyone who is in the D.C. area to get to Metro Stage uh, sometime between April 13th and the 29th to see you. And hopefully we're looking forward to having you back in New York at some time soon, too, right? Is that anything Um, on the schedule for New York? Absolutely no irons in the fire as far as New York because I usually wait to be invited or I go looking and it depends on how busy I am whether I can go looking or not. But it just uh, I, I performed last year at the Metropolitan Room mm. and that was fantastic. I didn't get a huge audience there uh, because you know I didn't invest in a, in a PR person. Uh, you know, the, most situations are that you go in and you you rent a place. And you hope you get back the door. So I might do something at La Mama or um, uh, one of those spaces, but it depends on when my German roots are showing. When uh, when that's ready, I'll be in New York. For okay. Sure. Well, you let us know. We'll certainly publicize it on Woman Around Town. Thank so you. thank you very much, Deb. And again, this is Charlene Gianetti, uh, editor of Woman Around Town, and we've been talking to Deb Filler. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.